Welcome to Adaptify. I'm Mike. I'm a paraplegic from New Zealand, and it's my mission to find the Adaptifiers of the world, people who have overcome challenges and found new, creative, interesting ways to be free despite needing to use a wheelchair for their mobility. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Adaptified podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, a huge shout out to everybody that backed our Kickstarter campaign for the Lap Stacker. For those of you that don't know, the Lap Stacker is the world's first retractable strap system for wheelchairs. What does it do? Well, it secures items to your lap so that you can push with your hands in a manual wheelchair, power chair fittings coming soon. You can push without needing to hang on to the items that you carry on your lap. Super useful. It's going to save you time, energy, embarrassment. Check it out now on Adaptify.com where it is available at below retail pricing pre-order right now. So today's guest is Christian Bag. Christian's an engineer from Canada. He's a paraplegic who is driven to find new ways to get into the outdoors. And that's what we love to talk about here on Adaptify. Christian, thanks so much for joining us. It's awesome to be on here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, so uh, whereabouts are you at the moment? I am in my shop in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Nice one. So, so you grew up there, presumably. And what was your what was your life like before your accident? Yeah, so I was born and raised in Calgary, and as I was, you know, as a younger kid, my my folks are both immigrants from England, and so. We weren't a particularly mountainous family. It was more in in the like late or mid-teens, I'd say, like when I was in high school, that I I sort of started following friends to the mountains, and that's when I sort of fell in love with them. And luckily, you're you're malleable and nimble enough at that age that you can kind of decide to be good at something just by putting in a bit of effort. And so I, I sort of fell in love with mountain biking and. Uh, snowboarding and caving and hiking and scrambling and all the all the things that you love to do in the mountains. So yeah, that was sort of how I identified myself for sure. I you know when I'd come home from school, I would get directly onto my mountain bike, ride to the the sort of local provincial park, which is Fish Creek Park, and sort of learned how to mountain bike. And we you know we cut trails, and this is in the early nineties. And, mm-hmm. and just crash our way down things until we got good enough where we didn't crash and then we'd, we'd do something a little harder. <laughs> so if you're like me, I enjoyed that exact thing. And for me, it was, it was the challenge. It was the exercise and the endorphins that come from that. And also it was a place that you could forget about everything else. Like you could, kind of got into this flow state and it was kind of, for me, it was a, a stress relief. And nowadays you'd call it mindfulness meditation. Was it like that for you? Yeah, for sure. I think like you said, like as a younger man, it was different than it is now. Like as a younger, as a kid, it was a playground. It was a playground without a fence, you know, and it was sort of the early days of mountain biking. So there wasn't a, there wasn't sort of a, a checklist of things that that you should do to get better to accomplish X, Y, or Z. It was just this, you know, we didn't know what was possible. It was also the years of the VHS tape, you know, and no internet. So <laughs> I didn't, maybe there was, maybe you were in New Zealand doing the exact same thing, but I, I wouldn't have known. You got to feel really creative, or I did. And then, mm. you know, when you, when you finished the, the ride up and the ride down, 
and you just sat there in the sun and you stared at a creek or your the sun and you're with your friends and and like yeah it would it wouldn't call it an escape it was just like yeah state of mind and and just it was my place um mm. and now as as an older man and and taking a like a good 20 year hiatus or let's call it 19 year hiatus from being in those places in the exact same way that I used to be you know like after I broke my back I definitely went back to the mountains a lot and I and I've done a lot of things and I've done a lot of things that have been really rewarding but it did take 19 years to get to the exact same feeling of creativity and just enjoying it. It's not an expedition. It doesn't take any extra planning. I was just able to go out and play. And as an adult, it's like you said, it's, it's a stress relief. It's a, this, it's a, that it's all the, it's all the labels that they put on, on the, the value of being in nature. But when you boil it down, you, you especially when you're, when you're pushing yourself and you're, I don't want to say risking, but but I will because I'd say I do risk things now. Probably not, certainly not as much as when I was eighteen. But but you have to be a you have to be present. You have to be a hundred percent present, and in, and it and it forces you because in those moments when you're when you're doing something that has consequences, you really have to. Well, you don't even have to push the other things out of your brain. Your brain is just you know in survival mode, and and I love that. I love that that I can get to that place where, you know, what's happening at work or what's happening, house maintenance or all these things we deal with as adults, just they melt away without me consciously trying to do it. So 19 years ago, 20 years ago, that freedom and that ease of getting that freedom and that outdoor experience changed. Can you tell us about what happened there? Yeah. So I, when I was 20, I broke my back snowboarding. So T789, I blew up and and it was I was paralyzed instantly. There was just a part of me that knew that this was it. Um so much so that and I feel like this is an important thing to bring up because I know that there are people out there that might listen to this that have no interest in adaptive mountain biking or nature for that matter, but a a big part of my story that that's pretty important is I had insane spasticity which a lot of people deal with. And I'm not this is just information for people. This certainly isn't me endorsing what I did, uh, but about so my you know my legs shook to the point where they're pulling my hips out of their socket. I was on tons of muscle relaxants and drugs, and and it was painful. I couldn't. I had to sleep in the fetal position to stop from my legs kicking out. Like it was, it wasn't a life to live. And so I chose to get my spinal cord cut, severed two years after. So it's called a Bischoff's myelotomy, and for me, it, it was the smartest thing that I did in my life, you know, period, actually, because I wouldn't have had a life had I not done it. Um, so, you know, woke up from the surgery and, and I was just a regular old paralyzed dude. And that's, that's really when, <laughs> when my life was as a paraplegic was able to begin. You know, I was, every day was a fight. Every, every moment was a fight. And now I could, now I could envision now I could look at the mountains and be like, okay, I can't get there right now because I don't have a piece of equipment that'll take me there, but I've got energy and I've got time and I've got the will. Wow. So at the time, uh, so, so essentially, and I think we lost a bit of audio there just at the start of that. Essentially, oh. you, had a, you had a snowboarding accident and, um, you know, a, a big crash or something, you went over a jump or, um, yep. and then you discovered yourself in a hospital, paralyzed, 
and with severe spasticity, as you just mentioned. What was one of the darkest places you were in and how did you find yourself overcoming that? Or was that realization that you needed to have that surgery? Was that the darkest moment? Well, probably like I have a five-year-old son and, and my wife and I just had our uh, another a daughter six weeks ago. And just as it was leading up to the birth, you know, finally she's like, Ooh, like I'm kind of freaked out because I got to give birth again. So point being like <laughs> your, your brain, I think over time, your brain forgets about, makes itself forget about the, the worst of times and you ultimately remember the best of times. So mm. it, it's hard for me to think back to a darkest time to tell you the truth. I'm, I'm a very pragmatic person and I always have been. Um, I'm sure, I, well, I know I, I had times where I wasn't happy about being in a wheelchair. I'm, I'm human. But I feel like whether or not it was dark and, you know, whether or not I did it more slowly than I do now, I did sort of have this continuous marching forward attitude. So the, you know, the, the decision to sever my spinal cord would, that would have actually been a very positive thing in my mind, as opposed to a dark place. You know, the dark place was living with what the spasticity and the, the realization with my surgeon that, that there was a potential way out. It wasn't even guaranteed. It was just a, a shot in the dark. That would have been a very happy moment in my life. And I wasn't a big climber before I was injured. Um, mm. You know, I'd, I'd played in the mountain. I'd done scrambles, but I, I wouldn't call myself a climber. One of my dad's friends would come to the hospital, like when I was in there for my back and uh, like right after I was paralyzed and he'd bring me, he was a climber and he'd bring me these climbing books, uh, you know, like stories of survival in the high Alpine, like K2 and, you know, big mountain stuff. Mm. And I really identified with the stories because these were these, you know, people like me who willingly put themselves into ultimately stupid situations. Um, you know, it's not like it's not like reading survival stories of someone crossing the Mediterranean Mediterranean on a migrant boat. You know, like that's a that's a whole different mm. survival story that I couldn't connect with because I didn't I wasn't doing I wasn't fighting for my life. I was fighting for fun. Mm. And and so these climbers are ultimately doing the same thing. No one's got a gun to their head to go up these mountains. But once they're up there, they need to deal with it. And and I was in a hospital bed paralyzed and I, I could identify I needed to deal with it. I was at the top of the mountain with a broken leg, you know, like like the only way down was to was to keep moving forward. So that that actually <laughs> books like that had a, a huge impact, I think, on my mindset. You know, uh, books like Touching the Void by Joe Simpson. You yeah. Know, his, it, it, like, I know the, it well. The, yeah. The constant, you know, sitting on a, sitting on a, on a ledge in a crevasse with just pure darkness below you and no way up. You can either stay on the ledge and die or you can go down and die, but at least going <laughs> down is somewhere. And so that's, that was sort of that, that's what I compare my decision to cut my cord was, it's like. I, I wasn't living mm -hmm. and they could get no worse in my mind. So like, you know, F it, let's try it. And it worked just like it worked for Joe. You know, I, I popped out of the snow just like he did and, and saw the light. Wow. And yeah, so that's, that, that had probably the, that story had the biggest impact on me as far as, you know, not misery loves company, but you, you want to just someone else who, who had made choices and, and succeeded. And, and so it gave me the, 
you know, gave me the, the power, I guess, to, to make the, some of those decisions. And, and it's, you know, to this day, I use that book his the way he would, you know, he couldn't fathom once he even popped out of the snow for, I don't want to spoil any of the book, but I guess he wrote it. So most people know that he's still alive, but the, like the crawling 15 minutes at a time or 15 feet, the end goal is too, is too much to think about. And, and sort of with the design of the bike, it was like, I wanted to get mountain biking the way that I used to mountain bike. But, but my first attempts were so pathetic. It's like, if I, if I got frustrated with the way the prototypes were working or the, the testing was working, I, I would have just stopped, but it was like, okay, I can go a hundred yards. And then, then I hit a log and I tipped over. Well, how do I stop from tipping over? Well, you need bigger tires, you know, just step by step by step. And then eventually you, you, you start to get somewhere and, and you get momentum. And so that's, yeah. that's sort of the, what I live by is little bits of momentum. I totally love it. Uh, harking back to your inspiration, if you like, from mountaineering stories, I had real life mountaineering experience uh, and some similar ones of survival, uh, just like, just like Joe, in fact. And, uh, I actually attribute that to, um, to, to the reason why I was able to navigate through the spinal cord injury and come out relatively unscathed, if you like. Um, so for you to point out that there's this mountaineering literature out there, for anyone listening, uh, you know, maybe you are at, at, a, at a low point in your life, I you know, thoroughly recommend you pick up some of these survival stories. Uh, yeah. And also there's a, a ton of really amazing survival stories about uh, at sea. So Survive the Savage Seas is one that springs to mind. There's, a, there's numerous others. And there's some real wisdom in those stories and – um, if you can draw a parallel between your own situation, then uh, you'll find that there is a pathway ahead and you, as human, do have the capacity to draw upon resilience that perhaps you don't know you have. Uh, so, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. That's, uh, that's really good. I've never heard anyone describe um, describe uh, that before. So, so yeah, that's, that's fantastic. So you, you're alluding to this. This, this bike and your desire to get back into the hills, your background is design, engineering, machinist. So, um, you know, you had your accident. Were you still able to go uh, back to work? What was the transition like between what you were doing before to what you did immediately after your spinal cord injury? Yeah, so because I had – I was young, so I, I was 20. Um, I was doing my apprenticeship in machining at the time. Mm. Um and, uh, and so, and because of the spasticity and I was working for, uh, I was working at the university of Calgary, actually in the engineering department, uh, I wasn't going to university, but I was just working in the shop there building prototype things for <coughs> research engineers or students. Um, so it was a good point being, it was a, a good institutional job, if you will. So good benefits and things like that. Mm. Um, so I had long-term disability. So I had, the, I had, I had sort of a pretty uh, easy path to to recovering without the stress of of what's next in my life. You know, I, I had a good year of year or so of of being paid and and without any pressure to come back. Um, that being said, I with the spasticity I had, I I did go back to work, but I couldn't work full hours. You know, I was in pain. It was it was pretty. It was pretty bad. And before I got the surgery, I actually had a, 
uh, baclofen pump installed, which is sort of a, like a spout the size of a, a hockey puck or a can of tuna um, implanted mm. in your abdomen and it with a tube that goes from it directly to your spinal cord and it drips muscle relaxants on it. Um, so I got that, uh, when I got that surgery, I got the, the pump installed, they filled it up and I left for Australia 10 days later. <laughs> the day I got my staples out, I got on the plane. Um, cause I, that was like, at that moment, that was my closest to freedom and from these shaky legs that I'd had, um, during my trip in Australia over the two months. Um, so I just went by myself. I actually had built my first chair cause I'm really tall. I'm six, four. And in the, the mid nineties, wheelchairs were worse than they are today. And, um, they didn't really take height into account hmm. as much as they do now. So my knees were up around my ears and I was a machinist. So I was, I had the mindset of being able to build my way out of these situations. So I finished my first chair the day before I went to Australia and I took it. Um, and then throughout that trip, my spasms just got worse and worse and worse. And, and that's sort of when like the maybe there are times there between like being a, a drunken Canadian traveler in Australia that I had some dark times. Cause I was, I was angry that my, the solution that I had wasn't a solution. Mm. Um, but that's when it came to mind, like, there's gotta be something else. Why don't we just like cut this cord into little pieces? Like screw it. I'm, I'm not going to walk. I don't care that I can sort of wiggle a toe. Let's get rid of it. So, mm. but so that would be the, and in the, at the same time, that was when I realized I was realizing that I did have the power since I was educated as a machinist and I had good friends who were, and I had access to machinery and, and I had design skills that technology was, you know, I was a hundred percent reliant on it. And if I was going to be a hundred percent reliant on it, I should become a master of it um, and start to build my way out of the situations that I didn't like or build myself into situations that I did like. Yeah, nice. So your return back from Australia and post-surgery, what, what's the story between Icon Wheelchairs and, you know, what, what led into that uh, venture? Well, so I'd been, so like I said, I'd made that a chair for myself um, and people around town in Calgary had, had seen it and uh, specifically a, a guy who was um, I guess he'd be officially be like a little person, but he also had uh, spinal issues. So, you know, you're, and he was a pretty big guy too. Mm. Uh, his name was Tom Lowe, which is a pretty last name, pretty funny last name for a, a little person. <laughs> Quite ironic. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. And, uh, and so I made him a chair because like he, he did not fit a typical wheelchair. Uh, and so that sort of started my my wheelchair building for higher days, um, you know, to get, there was, so there was a bunch of that, uh, started to make another chair, um, Stryker medical, a big medical company got involved with that. I did some work with Stryker and then, um, how did then, you get on with medical regulations and things around that nature? Like, did you a nightmare <laughs> yeah, money, <laughs> you need, you need money you you need someone with money just well money money and effort so it's like any job you know you you start a whether you're doing podcasts or uh you know building building trails for for mountain biking or all these fun things that you can you can list 
in the background are a bunch of things that aren't fun to actually make it happen. Um, um, so, so building wheelchairs, manual wheelchairs, especially is the, the design frankly is the easiest, certainly for me. Mm. Um, and then it's regulations and bureaucracy and red tape and FDA and, you know, all these, all these things. And that's sort of why I got out of manual wheelchairs because also, you know, I, nothing to, this is certainly no slight on, on other people who make manual wheelchairs and manual wheelchairs have gotten pretty, I think they're pretty good now. There's, there's some awesome ones. I think they should all have suspension. It blows my mind that they don't, but Mm. that's, that's me. Um, (laughs) but, but also like, since I, since I really started committing to the bike, like a decade ago, I've had the same chair. I've had the same chair for eight years now. And I don't really like the chair I'm actually in, in the shop right now has two flat tires and it has had for like a, a few weeks now, like <laughs> point being like, I just, you can kind of get around in a crappy chair, but you can't get around in a crappy bike. So all my, or not the places I want to go. So mm. all my, my mental energy is, as my interest in manual wheelchairs has waned. I think, I think they're good and you can get around and, you know, saving a pound here or there makes no difference in my mind. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Hey, so just stepping uh, back around that, the medical side of things, often people are astounded at how much uh, wheelchairs cost. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think you touched on a point there that people don't actually realise that the a lot of the cost in the wheelchair isn't just the material, the design of the wheelchair. It is the regulation and the um, the legal side of things that go into it. And so in order to be a medical product, you have to document um, just about every step you took throughout the design process. And you, you have to um, get approved by, if you want to sell in the United States, by the um, Federal Drug Administration. And there is a, you know, a, one of our companies, uh, Urigo, which is developing wearable technology. Um, you know, we've, uh, you know, we've come up, uh, against that and, um, and the costs are, you know, f- actually can be quite substantial and, mm-hmm. um, it makes, it, it actually creates a barrier to entry and stifles innovation in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, if I can comment on that, the, the stifling of innovation is a kind of a sore point for me as a paraplegic because I love what I do, but I had to do what I do to get to where I wanted to go because the equipment wasn't there. And so you've got a bunch of, this is, this is my like most skeptical take on this, especially in the manual wheelchair world. You mm. have a bunch of really big companies that make wheelchairs and they own the dealer networks, you know, in the sense that if, if you make a really nice chair and you fight through the regulations, you know, you, you cross your T's and you dot your I's and you get it sold at a dealer, unless you have a full product line from shower chairs to canes to chairs for stroke patients to this, to that, the other, then the big company will come in and say to the dealer, if you keep selling that other wheelchair, we're going to pull our whole line. And they're like, oh, no, we'll get rid of that other chair. So innovation stops that way, but it also stops, or it also doesn't start because the big, so the big companies really do own the market. And if you're making your money, you're making your market share year after year after year. 
why would you invest in engineering and testing and tooling and mm. new materials science and all this if you're already making your money? Mm. Like Reiner Kushal designed the typical wheelchair design we see today in the mid 80s. Imagine if mountain bikes looked like what they looked like in the mid 80s. So mm. the mountain bikes in the mid 80s looked like road bikes because that's what they were. Mm. You know, and look where we are now. Imagine if your 1980 car was what you got now. It's really, you know, from a from a paraplegic standpoint, it's infuriating that our industry is is so stunted and ultimately I think so pathetic compared to it to where it could be. Mm. So that's my that's my angry spiel. I'll, that'll be the last one I give. <laughs> so, yeah, Christian, you moved on from wheelchairs, and and understandably, you know, you've got to go where your passion lies. And so, you've been developing a trike in order to help you get back out into those remote places. I guess. Can you tell us about how that started and what the first uh, the first version looked like? So yeah, so the first version of the the trike was actually a cross-country sit ski. So in that I used to, before the trikes came to be, the easiest way to get into the mountains was cross-country skiing, cross-country sit skiing. So what does that look like for those of you who are not, out there not familiar with a, with a cross-country sit ski? What, what is that? Yeah, so they're, they're pretty easy to describe because they're pretty rudimentary. It's basically a seat on two cross-country skis and it's rigid and it would be like if you took a cafeteria chair and screwed it onto some skis and then you pushed and then you had regular poles and you just pushed yourself along. Hmm. And so you can get going, you, you know, like anything, you can get fit and you can get fast. Cross-country skiing often has its track set, it's called. So a machine will go and cut two grooves in the snow, uh, which makes it easier on cross-country sit skiing mm. uh, because you're basically a train on tracks gotcha yep and so you just you push along but because the skis are are rigidly and so i did that because snow sort of snow is nature's wheelchair ramp if you will mm. you know you've you've got logs and rocks and roots and all those things but if you blanket it with snow it's it's just a smooth surface now um it's like paving nature in a way Hmm. interesting yeah yeah so that was my way because it because i i got to go out also once you're a kilometer from the trailhead you usually don't see anybody and uh and and so i was able to be sort of i was able to be in nature the way i i loved it which mm. was like alone or or just with my friends and family like like out there as opposed to downhill sit skiing I think is is amazing. It just it wasn't the right time for me to do it. I I injured myself skiing and and I was crazy and mm. and I never did groomed runs. So like going back and I don't know. Not that you can't be insane and like do the the things they're doing on mono skis is nuts and and hopefully one day I'll I'll get back when my son decides to start skiing or snowboarding. But but at the time my for whatever reason, whether, uh, you know, I just didn't want people bugging me or, or whatever, I'd started cross country sit skiing. So now cut to like getting better at it, getting pretty fast. And I'd mm. met, I, I was making wheelchairs with icon in Toronto at the time, um, Toronto, Canada. So mm. sort of long way two, from the mountains, but yeah, yeah. 5,000 or three or 4,000 kilometers East. Um, 
but I met a girl out there, uh, who's, who's now the mother of my children and my wife, but, uh, but I met her and I brought her back to Calgary and I wanted to introduce her to the, the places I loved. So she started cross country skiing and, and then I wanted to, to go to a backcountry hut. So there's like these little huts peppered through the mountains, some of them in very inaccessible places. Um, mm. well, you'll, you'd know from the, the climbing world that huts, huts yeah. aren't for the, it's not like for tourists. It's like, so you don't die somewhere in the mountains. <laughs> um, yeah. so there was, we were going to Mount Assiniboine. So it, it was about a 25 kilometer ski, ski end, and there's a, a hut halfway. And so we're headed there for the first day and, and I've got my wife and then, uh, another two other friends, couple, and they're all able-bodied. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm the man and I'm, I'm strong and I got the bags and I'm waiting for them at every corner. And, and then it starts to snow a bunch and we get to the end of the groom trail about, about nine or 10 kilometers in the, the groom trail ends. Mm. And, and now I'm on like backcountry cross-country ski terrain <laughs> and, and so you'll get it, but yeah. some people might not. But so there's tree wells. So tree wells are when the snow accumulates, you know, deep snow, it's softer where a, a pine tree is because uh, of the branches. So when an able-bodied person passes a tree, their outside knee bends and their inside leg drops down and away they go. But when that happens on a fully rigid cross-country sit ski, you tip like 20 degrees to the side and tip over into the tree well. And also, if you're familiar with the outdoors, there's a lot of trees. So this <laughs> happened very, very frequently to the point where we were averaging like, you know, half a kilometer an hour. Oh, no. And it's snowing and we're in the middle of nowhere and it's getting dark. I eventually ditched my sit ski, like I gave it to them and I scooched on my butt for like 2K uh, oh, alone. Man. They, were all, they were all sort of getting cold and like kind of scared and i was joe simpson here we go yeah well and i have a tolerance (laughs) i have a i do apparently have a high risk tolerance and and i was comfortable in the mountains so i was like you guys go and and i'll just like one one bum scooch at a time i'll i'll make it and i did and the and the tracks the next day were pretty hilarious looking back on them he's like little bum lumps in the snow every that's no easy feat man 2k's bum shuffling out there you must have i mean you must have been exhausted at the end of it i was i was exhausted i was cold and there's like there's no bears but there are cougar it was actually probably pretty dumb but (laughs) there are so many things i do in my life um yeah you survived uh, to tell the tale but that was so that was the beginning the artic the sort of articulating framework that that's on the front of the bikes that's where it was born because i was like I love this place, but I cannot get here. Like tipping into tree wells, mm. like I'll never, I can't do this again. My wife won't do this again. No one, no one, no friend is going to come with me again. So that's when I thought of the way that I could have one ski higher than the other um, and keep me level. Mm. And, and so I did that, the ski, it was, you know, I've designed a lot of things in my day. And I'd say 90% of them are absolute failures. Uh, and that's just the way it goes for, for designers and inventors, I think. Mm. But this one worked. Like, it worked right out of the box. And it was sort of the eureka, like, wow, like, this is, this is how I can get through the mountains. Because the mountains aren't flat, you know? Like, the, not, I don't mean, like, up and down elevation gain. I mean, side to side. Yeah. So, like, there's really, that's the biggest 
at that point, that was the biggest problem. It wasn't like, how do I go down a steep hill or up a steep hill? It's like, even if it's, even if I'm in the Valley, this is inaccessible. Hmm. So, and it was once I got that done on the ski, it wasn't long after, you know, skiing around happily that the, the summer came around and I thought, what if I turn this thing upside down and bolt it to the front of a bike? Cause I'd been trying, I've been trying trikes for a while and they were all like, they all just encountered that problem of side slopes and tipping over. Mm. So no matter what I did, you know, like I have thousand dollar wheels and the best brakes and like all the teched out gear, but irrelevant, you know, like Mm -hmm. there's, there's no, there's no shock manufacturer on the world that deals with that defies the law of physics. So it was, it was that moment when I flipped that cross country sit ski upside down, bolted it on the front of a bike, the ugliest looking bike trike you've ever seen. (laughs) and went to uh went to like a a fire road like a gravel road out in the mountains drove up to the top and sort of started going down i used to test used to test things there because you was just like about a 10k road of strictly downhill Mm. so it was a long a long distance to try things and test things and see i compared to like like they say surfing is the toughest sport to learn and i think it's because you once you fall you've got all this, Yeah, you have to reset, mm. you know, you, you can't just get right back up and go again. You've the amount of time you're actually on the wave is such a small, you know, you might ride away for five seconds and then you, you know, yeah. then you fall off or the wave ends. And so, you know, you think about the 10,000 hour theory to master something. I mean, you got to, you got to spend a heck of a lot of time and catch a lot of waves in order to get that 10,000 hours under your belt, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, totally. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Uh, so that's why like this long road was the the good thing. You didn't have to crank. You, you just knew what you were getting. You just had to let go of the brake and away you went. And all the other bikes, you know, they'd, they'd get speed wobbles at 5k or, you know, 10k an hour, or 15 or something would go wrong. And the day, the day I flipped that upside down, I went out there with my friend, uh, Bushy, He's a crazy guy. He's a biker. He's got, he owned a, a grilled cheese shop in, in a mountain town in BC called Squamish. And he had like a big block of cheese tattooed on his neck. And just like, he's, he's nuts. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, he, he came with me and, and drove, drove me to the top. And I went, I started to go and it was like 10 K an hour, 15, 25, 40 at 70 K an hour you know, ripping down this road, I was like, this is it. Like we did it because you, because I was leaning into corners. Like I, I wasn't flipping. And then I got to the bottom and I was like, can we go up again? He's like, Oh, we're going up, (laughs) but you're not riding that thing. Like it's my turn. Like like, in this crazy biker. And it, it was like, like he was addicted and he hadn't even tried it. Uh, and that's what it's been ever since is the second I get out of this thing, my friends are in it. Awesome. It, you just have like this shit eating grin on your face after like five minutes. So from that moment, there's obviously been numerous prototypes, refinements. Uh, talk us through, talk us through some of, some of that. And like, um, who, who have you had to get involved and where have you manufactured it? And, you know, all of the, some of those details are quite interesting to me. Yeah. So the, the refinements came from, you know, then, so, so after that day on the, the gravel road, 
you know, over uh, like a few more, you know, more testing and this and that. But then, then also like when you go, so this gravel road is, it's on, it's called Moose Mountain Fire Road. And I know it well because I used to go biking there. And that road is actually used to shuttle people like bikers up. And then there's a bunch of downhill runs off of it. So now like, you know, I, my mind's been blown. I've gone 70K an hour. I'm super happy, but that isn't where people go biking. That's where people go up the road and then down the trails. Mm. So I was like, that was my next itch was like, I want to go down the trails. And so that's where like new problems arose because it, it only had a rear brake. It had no suspension. So you start going down a proper downhill mi- mountain bike trail and you need more than a rear brake mm. uh, and you need suspension. So it was like, that's, that's sort of where the refinements, the trails the trails dictated the refinements and then help wise it was i would say bowhead that's that's our our name now i'd call us very much an engineering company an engineering and design company um versus like a marketing one mm-hmm. you know hopefully unfortunately that's the way you have to go to sell stuff but uh but we we always you know for a long time it was just me and then i i got this a younger engineer named will gill uh, he's 25 and, and he helped on the CAD side. Uh, we have a co-op student named Tatiana now, and she's helping. She's in third year biomed. Like we just incrementally change things as they're, we, we sort of cycle through the bike, let's say like suspension, brakes, electric, seating, suspension, brakes, frame, chassis, suspension, seating. We just keep going around and around in circles you know, which is, I guess, cutting back to my, my anger towards big medical companies making the same chairs since 1985. I'd like to say we're, we're just doing the model that the car industry, the bike industry, the, the climbing industry, the paddling industry, the, any industry in the world, but adaptive does is we're continually trying to make this thing better. And that's really, so go back to 10 years ago. That's, that's all I was doing was just constantly changing one thing at a time to make it better um and the shop the shop itself is in my is in my basement uh like so my i've got a full machine shop in my basement (laughs) awesome yeah i can't move because the the machines that came down were aided greatly by gravity um so reversing that would be next to impossible um (laughs) So this is where we live <laughs> with a machine shop. Unless someone wants to buy a house with a machine shop one day. Hey, I was uh, I was sailing across the Pacific a number of years ago, and we encountered uh, we encountered a German guy and his Brazilian wife, and he was a machinist engineer. And in his aft cabin, which is usually this kind of you know luxurious space, and we're talking a fifty foot boat, so not a huge boat, but. Right. Um, and his, he'd converted his aft cabin into a machine shop, and he had uh, wow. you know, he had a small lathe and a mill and all the welding equipment you needed. And he hopped from island to island and repaired things, and that basically paid his way. You know, either through um, you know swapping out you know huge vines of bananas or coconuts or um, you know small other sort of um, pro bono things, but um, he was able to you know, continually support his cruiser lifestyle by having, uh, having, uh, a full workshop in his, in his boat. And, uh, that's crazy. I thought that well, was he cool. wins. 
Yeah, totally. So, maybe, you know, if there's a big flood or something, maybe your, your house, if it floats, you're, uh, you could join them on <laughs> some yeah. island somewhere. But, but If yeah. there's a flood where I live, it's all gone very bad. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. So I, I don't, we didn't really perhaps describe the, the trike. Can, can you uh, describe some of the features of it? Um, so those listening can get a sense of, of yeah. how, how do people ride it? What, how do they power it? What, what, um, where can you go with it? Okay. Um, yeah, so it's a trike, so it's three wheels. It's two wheels in the front. They're uh, 20 inch size and that's for a reason. Uh, and then one big wheel in the back. Uh, so there's, there are a few other adaptive mountain bike companies out there and it's, it's a typical configuration having the, the two wheels up front and then one wheel in the back. The thing that there's two things that make ours unique. One is currently sort of a commitment to electric, full electric. When I first started the bike, it was a hand crank and, and I rode hundreds of kilometers on it that way. And I was actually fairly committed to that. And it wasn't until someone really pressured me to put a motor on that I did it. And that's when I thought, oh, I'll never ride this any other way. Like this is way too much fun. And and, you know, I can, there's a thousand ways for me to get exercise, gym memberships, hand cycles, you name it. But, but I'd never had this much fun in a wheelchair. So, so it's electric. And then the, the biggest thing is the way that the front end, the front of the bike works is, so it's got this parallelogram articulation on it, um, so that it leans, it leans and it, it accommodates side slopes, uh, but not and so a byproduct of that leaning and the side slope accommodation is that it can be narrow because it doesn't want to tip over. Mm. And that's, that's what really differentiates it. And it's not a small pro and con. It is enormous. Uh, and, and this was sort of high. I mean, not that I needed it to be highlighted for me, but when we were just at the BC bike show in Vancouver, and I wanted to go riding in Squamish. It's still covered in snow. But so we went out there with this guy from Ant Films, which is a, a, a company that does like uh, mountain bikes, snowboard, ski movies and stuff like that. And so point being, he's an amazing cyclist. He rides with Brandon Seminuk and Jordy Lund, like some of the best mountain bikers on the planet. The guys who go to the Red Bull Rampage and, mm. he, and he rides with them. Mm. And he's not them, but he's... He's as close, close as I've seen. And I told him the bike would go anywhere. And you, and I'm starting to realize because I bumped into more than one person like that. You kind of have to be careful when you say like, oh, I'm good to go anywhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah, their version of anywhere is, can be kind of scary. But, but they believe you. Um, so, so we went, so I, I, mean, I just posted a, a video on Instagram. And so that would be, I'd say, number one, uh, to anybody listening is to go to the Bowhead Corp, like Bowhead Corporation Instagram page, because a lot of what I describe, it's like describing an elephant to someone who hasn't seen one. Mm-hmm. Um, it just verbally, it doesn't make, you can't really tell what I'm talking about. But so the, the first part of this, the video that I posted is going through a gate that is 30 inches wide, which is narrower than any other adaptive bike on the planet. Mm-hmm. So first off, nobody could go where I went. Well, you'd say, well, you could, because you could get out of your bike and, you know, your friend could tip it on its side and get through the gate. But that gate is just a, a small representation of 
every 50 feet that you're going to travel on that trail. Yeah. There's trees that narrow constantly. Well, let's say there's a way around. There aren't because, you know, on, on the left is a cliff and on the right, it's straight up, but let's pretend there was a way around. Well, the trails also, you know, 20 degree side slope. And, you know, I don't have the experience certainly that you do on other adaptive bikes, but, you know, I've heard from people that they're quite tippy and I've seen Mm -hmm. lots of them tip over. And so I'll never know how another adaptive bike would compare to ours on this trail because they could never ride this trail. (laughs) That's must be such a satisfying feeling. Yeah, it's satisfying, but it's also, you know, you want, it's, I feel like the, not that I want people to be unhappy with their bikes, but at all. Um, I think people being out, out in nature anyway is amazing. Um, and there are adaptive trails out there. Um, but for example, I did an adaptive trail in the cusp BC last year. It's sort of the uh, Western Canada's first officially adaptive trail. And it's a downhill trail and it's a blue run. And, and it's awesome. It's super fun. But my wife, who doesn't mountain bike at all, came with, and she was five months pregnant, <laughs> and she rode that trail. And, and I've been in love with mountain biking my whole life. You know, granted, I took a big hiatus because I didn't have equipment. But, you know, I, I have a good read of the land. Um, I've, I've got a good sense of speed and skill. And, like, the trail that someone's giving me can be ridden by a beginner who's five months pregnant. Mm. And I didn't want that. I want to ride a trail where she can't go. Not that I don't want to be with her. <laughs> yeah. I want, I get what you're saying, man. I totally. Want, yeah. I want to be, I've worked hard to be this good and I, and I get a thrill out of being this good. And I want to, I want the guy who rides with Brandon Semenuk yeah, to be like, Holy shit, man, that thing is crazy. And this trail was super icy and he walked his bike most of the way and I didn't. Yeah. And the thing is, you you know, you, you, you ride with your wife. That's, that's great. But you also want to be able to ride with um, perhaps some of your friends who aren't going to want to ride that easier trail. Right. So, Mm -hmm. so your, your trike, uh, uh, the bowhead, that's what you call the bowhead reach. Bowhead reach. Yep. That thing can go, that thing can go anywhere more or less. And and, I, yeah, I haven't been turned back from a trail. And that is freedom right there, man. You know, thanks so much for uh, pouring, you know, 10 years into that. And uh, so for for anyone listening out there, how do they they get hold of one of these? How can they try one of these? Um, So website would be www.bowheadcorp.com. We had to throw corp, like corporation, on the end of it because uh, if you're not familiar, Bowhead is a popular whale. So it's hard to just get that URL. Mm. Uh, So... So yeah, we're bowheadcorp.com or on Instagram. Um, you can you can just comment on a video or or mess, direct message. Um, we'll be at the we just did the BC bike show, so that's over. But people saw it there. We actually got you know they a company that does media for biking wrote an article, and we were heavily talked about in it as the best thing at the show. This is a show for mountain bikers in a province that has some of the best biking on the planet mm. with some of the best bike companies showing their wares. And, and we got half of the article written about us. It was pretty awesome. Wow. Excellent, man. Nice work. And, 
and then we'll be at the Sea Otter Classic, which is in Monterey, California, um, early April, uh, which is another giant bike show. Um, and then we'll be we'll do some abilities expos, which are sort of uh, adaptive or you know, disabled trade shows, user shows. So you can come and check it out. But we always post sort of on our website or on Instagram about where we're going to be, and and we'll endeavor to to get you know whether it's meet someone halfway or or figure out a way to get to someone to have them try it. And so essentially, it's a it's a pre order, and and is there some custom elements that that people can order with the with the trike? Yeah, very. Uh, yeah, in the vein of sort of in the same vein as a bicycle. So the the base model bike is ultimately just as capable as the the most expensive version. You, if you pay more, you get fancier. You go from X Fusion shocks to Fox shocks. Mm. Um, but I've every video on that Instagram I'm on. Not only am I on X Fusion shocks, but I'm on a an iteration back of suspension design that that didn't work nearly as well. So like, uh, but yeah. So the options are new you know, upgrade shocks, upgrade brakes. You go from fiberglass fender to carbon fiber fender, but ultimately the performance of the very base model equals that to within 2% or 5% of the most expensive version. It's just sort of customizing and personalizing. Um, and then you can, uh, you can order more, uh, extra batteries. They're basically a commodity. Mm. Um, so just, just to get more range. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. And then uh, fitting wise, it's just we use a it's very integral to the functionality of the bike is or the trike is this kiteboarding harness. Uh, it's what it's it's the way the bike works. It's the difference between the position of your hands and your torso. So even a, an Olympic gymnast with the strongest core on the planet uh, couldn't ride this bike without the harness. It has nothing to do with adaptive. It's just how it functions. And gotcha. once you get once you get it even a tiny bit practice, there's no strength involved in the leaning it or, or articulating of it. Um, so long as you're just like, there's no strength involved in leaning a bicycle to the side. You just need to be going fast enough or, or be on the right terrain. That sounds like some fantastic design. What does the future hold for, for you and, and Bowhead? I think, um, hopefully a lot more riding and get, I get to get out of the basement a bit. <laughs> nice. Um, but, uh, you know, continued engineering without, without letting out too much. We are, we're working on sort of expanding from just being looked at as adaptive to, to a bigger market being sort of like the baby boomers. So I, you know, inspired by me being able to get out, like I've, I've accomplished ultimately what I want to, I, you know, other than, other than the way mountain bikes have progressed, you know, hopefully in five years, I don't recognize this bike that it's like some, beautiful composite beast that that a bunch of people way smarter than me have designed Mm. um but functionally it does like i ride i ride black diamond trails wherever i want uh the only thing holding me back is my skill not the technology right now um which is pretty awesome but if you but now like my mother say who's uh mid-70s uh, has had two knee replacements, a hip replacement, has spinal stenosis, and she loved the mountains and she loved hiking, and she has four grandkids, and she's never been on a hike with any one of them, and foreseeably never will be, hmm. and that kind of breaks my heart. Um, 
So, and, and also when she looks at, uh, the bowhead reach, she's terrified and wants nothing to do with it. Um, so we are working on a version that would be, that would cater to sort of that population, the, the aging population that, you know, as you get older, you don't lose your love of the outdoors. No. Um, you just can't access it anymore. Uh, and you know, that's, that's exactly what I went through. I just happened to be 20 when it happened. Um, so a focus on getting that population outside and, and we've got some pretty exciting developments on the way that, that make it much sort of the same functionality of something that doesn't tip, um, something that's safe. So the leaning, you know, it allows you to do black diamond runs, but it's a lot safer than the typical adaptive bike too, because you don't tip. Um, yeah, the, it, it's awesome. It's, you know, it does sort of everything. So yeah, the, the goal is to, to get, there's, like I said, in a, in a talk, I was like, you know, hopefully not everyone in this room will suffer a spinal cord injury or lose a limb, but everyone in this room is going to get old and you're all going to die. <laughs> it's, it's a bit harsh, but it's true. Yeah. And like, you know, you may love the outdoors up until the, till your last breath. So why not be able to go there up until your last breath? That's a fantastic vision. Uh, Christian, I love it so much. Uh, and, uh, yeah, the, the world is a better place because of, uh, innovators like you, man. Thanks so much. That's a good place to, uh, to say thanks a lot for joining me on the show today. You are without a doubt an adaptifier and uh, doing great things out in the world. So yeah, thanks once again. Yeah. Thank you for having me and yeah, giving us a voice. No sweat, man. Well, uh, if you find yourself in New Zealand, um, Make sure you bring one of those uh, bowhead reaches with your a couple, and, uh, and and let's get amongst it. I know some trails that I'd like to access again, so uh, yeah, that'd be sweet. We'll endeavour to make it happen. Go on, mate. We'll enjoy the rest of your day. Uh, thanks so much once again. Yeah, you too. Thanks a bunch. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and meeting today's Adaptifier. To learn more about Adaptify and the products we have in development products that will increase freedom for wheelchair users go to adaptdefy.com that's a-d-a-p-t-d-e-f-y.com we're also on all the major social media platforms at adaptify follow us there for more behind the scenes looks and more up-to-date information on product releases hope you enjoyed this podcast look forward to catching you next time